Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for joining us uh, for a really special edition of uh, today's show. Um, We're going to take a break just for a day. We've got to kind of catch our breath. We've been talking about all the activity down at the legislature because Thursday is crossover day down there. We're going to be talking a lot about the legislature uh, for the next couple of days. So today we wanted to take a time out from all that to talk about an incredibly important subject with a really wonderful guest, and I will introduce her in just a second. Uh, I first want to welcome Jim Galloway. It's Monday, and as you all know out there, Galloway is with us on Mondays and Fridays. He's the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and um, he oversees the Political Insider blog, part of um, AJC.com. Hey, Galloway, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. All right. Well, it's good to have you here for this conversation. Um, If we could get somebody to come on into the studio for a minute, we've got to fix a problem we've got with one of the headphones. Um, But while Robert Jimison does that, let me introduce our guest today. Um, She is, it is not overstatement to say that Professor Deborah Lipsad is truly one of the world's leading authorities on the Holocaust, on anti-Semitism. She is uh, the uh, professor of modern Jewish history and Holocaust studies at Emory University, part of the Department of Religion there, and Deborah has elevated that department to um, being one of the best thought-of departments in the United States and beyond. She's also, you and I have known each other for a really long time. A very long time. We used to be gym rats together. That's right. We used to work out. Deborah would come into the gym with her New York Times. I always thought it was amazing. She, you could bring in the broadsheet New York Times, <laughs> right. get on the elliptical trainer, and read the Times while you were doing it. I, I thought it was kill a... myself. But... <laughs> Deborah, let's your new book, Anti-Semitism Here and Now, has been out for just a couple weeks. You told me right before we came on the air. It's already in its second printing. Congratulations Thank you. on that. I think people just to set this up a little bit. Um, the people who may not have been familiar with your work got a chance to learn a lot more about you a few years ago when you wrote a book. Um, well, f- before we even talk about the book, you were sued for libel by one of the most notorious Holocaust deniers in the world, mm-hmm. David Irving. Irving. Uh, and a movie was made of that trial, which took place in London, and we're going to talk about it in a, in a little while, but it certainly brought you to people's attention, especially since Rachel Wise played you in the picture. Yeah, not bad. Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to get that as the conversation, get to that as the conversation goes forward, but let's start with anti-Semitism here and now. Um, so I want to set this up with a couple of quotes from the early parts of the book. You say, right at the top of the book, it is hard, if not impossible, to explain something that is essentially irrational, delusional, and absurd. That is the nature of all conspiracy theories, of which anti-Semitism is just one. So, I want to talk about that. But then you have a quote, again, early in the book, and you come back to it a couple times, in which you set out one definition of anti-Semitism. You say, and it's an old joke... Mm -hmm. An anti-Semite is someone who hates Jews more than is absolutely necessary. You say it makes us laugh, but it should also make us think. So take those two statements and let's start the conversation based on those. Okay, well, first of all, um, let's start with the second one, hating Jews more than is absolutely necessary. And when I tell that to my students, they sort of sit there and think, should I laugh? Can I laugh? Yeah, I cringed <laughs> when I read that. Well, and, I, and it does make us laugh, yeah. but it is true. If I hate you because I just don't like you or I think you did something wrong to me, that's one thing. But if I hate you one iota more because you're a Jew or if in the case of racism because you're African-American, then you've you've migrated from plain old hate into prejudice. 
So that's that's what I mean by that. If you add the Jewish element, and by the way, the flip side of that is philo-Semitism, love of Jews, you know? Someone who says, oh, I'm in trouble with the law, I'm going to find myself a smart Jewish lawyer. Not just a smart lawyer, but a smart Jewish lawyer. Yeah. And then the lawyer can't win the case because you're guilty of sin or something, <laughs> you know? And then you say, oh, that damn Jewish lawyer, you know? I don't know if you, am I allowed to say that on the air? I'm not. Um, but I said it. Um, too late now. Um, you know, it's, it, it sounds like it's one of those jokes that, that, that can only be told if you're Jewish. Well, I guess so. I mean, you do have certain, every ethnic, there's a whole body of ethnic humor. And in fact, I did tell the joke. I was had a, a very nice informal private meeting with the D, members of the D.C. City Council. And one of them sitting there, who happens to be African-American, D.C. is a heavily African-American city, as your, your listeners certainly know. Um, and I told it, and he looked at me, and I said, something wrong? He said, can I laugh? I said, yes, you absolutely can laugh. Um, but so that's one thing. The other part on the delusional, absurd, a conspiracy theory Think about it. What are the charges uh, that are standard to an academic, to an anti-Semitic charge? Well, the Jews are all capitalists, or the Jews are all communists, or the Jews are pushy. They want to be in places where they're not wanted, or they're clannish. They stick together. Well, last time I checked, you can't be a capitalist and a communist at the same time. You can't be pushy and clannish at the same time. It's this notion of Jewish control, of Jewish extraordinary control over things. Now, there may be companies, there are many, that are, that are run by a Jew, but that's not the Jews. You know, it, the minute you put the in front of it, the African Americans, the Jews, you got to be careful because often you're on the slippery slope to anti-Semitism. But a conspiracy theory looks for explanations for... Things that are inexplicable to you. Why did I lose my job? Why did I lose my house? Why? And you look for some logical, to you logical, I put logical in quotation marks, explanation. Well, if you were to say it's the fault of the bicycle riders, people would say, you know what, not only have you lost your house and your job, but you're in need of medical attention. Um, but if you say it's a Jewish conspiracy, because anti-Semitism is so old, it's not a recent hatred. It's the probably oldest, longest hatred going back to the beginning of uh, to the time of the New Testament and Christianity split from Judaism, et cetera. Um, it resonates with yeah. people. Um, let, let's point out why this conversation is so important today. I mean, we could talk about anti-Semitism at any period of time, as you point out, mm -hmm. probably since the birth of Christianity. But your book title is really relevant anti-Semitism here and now. Mm -hmm. And what you're talking about, I think, is addressing this frightening resurgence of anti-Semitism very actively and very much out in the open. The Anti-Defamation League, uh, in 20, their last figures, the last year in which they've reported figures on, on hate crimes um, and other uh, anti-Semitic incidents, uh, showed a spike in 2017 of anti-Semitic incidents of some 60%. So here and now is really important mm -hmm. to this conversation. Let's, let's address the cover of the book. It has a tiki torch on it. Mm -hmm. A tiki torch and a handout stretched is from Charlottesville. Um, but it also has a back picture of an Israeli flag with footsteps on it and a swastika imposed on it. So my comment to the book designer when they came to me with the tiki torches and the Charlottesville marchers on the front or just the head of them, um, I said, that's from the right. But the book deals with anti-Semitism from the right and anti-Semitism from the left. Um, and we had to represent both on the cover. Let me, let me ask you, if, if, I, if I can, just, just for, is, is, this is just a structural question. I mean, you've, you've cast the book in, in, in the form of a series of letters. Correct. Of, uh, of, of, of exchanges uh, with, a, with, a, with a, a, a female Jewish student and a law professor, uh, a Christian law professor. And you. And, and, and yourself, and yourself, and yourself. Right. So, so what was what was what, what was the purpose? Well, I'll tell you. I when I first sat down to write the book, I want I write scholarly books. I have thirty pages of footnotes in the book that shouldn't scare your listeners. 
Um, <laughs> but they're there. I write books based on fact, based on research, but I couldn't put my he- hands around how to write this book so that it would be interesting to people outside the academy. It was boring. I was falling asleep writing it, and I had thought about the people mm-hmm. reading it. They would be asleep before they got past the second line. And a friend called me and said, try letters. And, of course, that's been a format. You know, sure. we've had many, many famous people use letters as a format. And so I started with this. I began to think, how, who was I writing to? And I'm, the, the, the two characters, Abigail, the Jewish students, and Joe, the uh, law professor in, at Emory who happens to be Jewish, uh, happens to be not Jewish, Christian, um, are composite figures. They're not real people. Sure. They're composites of people I've had conversations with. But everything that comes out of their mouths, everything they ask me, and lots of what I say to them are reflections of conversations that I've had, emails I've received, letters from students on Emory campus, off of Emory campus, colleagues, people in the general world, you know, riding on airplanes, someone will hear what I do and begin to ask questions, et cetera. So it's it's sort of funny because today we have all these historical figures, whether, you know, the crown with Queen Elizabeth or Victoria or the favorite, you know, which in which Rachel Weiss played an important role, uh, where you have historical figures speaking fiction. Here you have two fictional characters speaking what really happened. Well, it also gives the book an immediacy, and it puts a face on all of these people. It's not just Professor Deborah Lipstadt writing these things. Um, you have created personas, and it, it does help us see how real and impactful the issues that you talk yeah. about are. I've been so gratified by the responses I've gotten of parents saying to me they're going to give this book to their kids. I just got a, an email from a woman who is a student at uh, Columbia, Columbia Graduate School, and she's encountered anti-Semitism. Not only I read your book over the weekend, but when I finished, I ordered 10 copies for friends of mine wow. who don't get it. Yeah. Um, so let me go back to this notion about a resurgence of anti-Semitism today. Uh, Brett Stevens, the truly talented conservative columnist for the New York Times, uh, wrote a really positive and, and, for the most part, really glowing review of this book. And, and here's how he started it. He said, as recently as the turn of this century, it was just about plausible to hope that anti-Semitism might soon go the way of fear of witches, not extinct, but too manifestly absurd for all the dumbest of bigots to avow. In the United States, there was hardly an institution where Jews weren't welcomed and fully, if not overrepresented. In Europe, taboos against anti-Semitism continued to hold firm. Two generations after the end of World War II, in the middle of the in the Middle East, it seemed possible that the peace process would lead at least to a softening of hatred toward the Jewish state. Do you agree with what Brett Stevens says? Yes. I thought at the beginning of this century, you know, when when Al Gore picked Joseph Lieberman to be his running mate, a lot of people thought, ah, we're going to see an outbreak of anti-Semitism. I see Jim is smiling. I I still have my Gore-Lieberman yarmulke. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a lot of people thought, you know, this is going to give rise to anti-Semitism. It didn't happen. And at the same time, and even earlier, you had universities, Princeton University. Princeton was the last university to really drop its barriers to Jews, to African-Americans, et cetera. Um, Had a president who was Jewish. Dartmouth, a bastion of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, had a president who was not only Jewish, but displayed his uh, Hanukkah menorah collection in the entrance to the president's house. You had all sorts of things which had been unheard of before. Um, and, and one could legitimately think, hey, this is going away. And you also had Jews, as a result partially of the politics of cultural identity, and some of it obviously went too far across the board, but that's for another conversation, but openly celebrating their Jewish identity, celebrating who they were. We just concluded here in Atlanta the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival. I was speaking to the director of the film festival. I think he told me there were 37,000 people who bought tickets, and lots of them non-Jews, because I sit next to them and I say, how come you're here? And I'm not Jewish, but I'm a film buff, and this has great films. So there was an opening, and and now we're seeing a contracting, um, as Brett Stevens says in his opening paragraph of the review of the book. Uh, What's happening? I think a number of things are happening. First of all, there's a constant. 
Um, the day after, or the day of Pittsburgh, I was interviewed uh, by an editor at the New York Times. And I said to her, I was trying to, she said, describe anti-Semitism for me. Help me understand it. And I said to her, it's like a herpes virus. And the minute I said that, I said, oh, that's so horrible. Don't quote me on that. She said, no, it's perfect. I get it. Herpes, until recently, now there's medication, I think, that cures it. But until recently, if you got herpes, it was in your body. And it would lie dormant. But if you were under pressure, if you're under tension, it would pop up. We've all heard the story someone going for an interview and suddenly they get a herpes sore on their lip or something that morning or whatever. Anti-Semitism was there. It would lie dormant. But when people needed someone to blame, someone to hold responsible, whether it was the Nazis in the Third Reich, whether it's people on the left, people on the right, didn't matter. It would be a convenient kind of thing because it made sense to people. The same way racism makes sense, and I put that, of course, in quotation marks, to, to many people. Um, so I think that's one thing, that it's always a constant. I think there's another thing, too. Uh, it's an era of populism, um, of nationalism, and I'm not, don't, I, I hope your, your listeners don't mix up nationalism with patriotism. I'm a patriot, a very strong patriot. Um, but nationalism is sort of my country, right or wrong, the best, the, you know, it's, 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 it's a, uh, a, tr a raising up of your country by trampling on others. Um, that I think has been played upon by many political leaders in this country, in Europe, et cetera. And I think we have the internet, social media, which allows hatred to proliferate and the haters to be haters but hide behind handles or names or whatever it might be. So I think, and, and we're seeing it on the right and we're seeing it on the left. We see people who themselves may not be anti-Semitic, but, but stirring up the pot because their followers are anti-Semitic. Yeah, it's, it's a time of fracturing. Mm -hmm. That's and, and, well said. And, and, and in times of fracturing, what you want to do is you want to tie your group together. And the way we have found that people push their people together is, uh, is going after somebody else. That's right. That's well said. Well said. If I, I, you, you, you build yourself up by putting other people down, not by putting yourself up. And I think and, – and the Jews – and other groups as well, but certainly African-Americans know this very well. That's often on, on their backs that, that that happens. Yeah, I'm glad that you uh, have a couple of times now referenced uh, African-Americans who obviously deal with racism uh, it, it, as much as Jews, if not more, it, it, it over the centuries. In different it, ways. In different ways. So, so we are in no way trying to say here, oh, anti-Semitism is the real prejudice of no, the no, day. No, no, I think... First... And it's important to say that it is a symptom, and Jim said it, of the fracturing that leads to prejudice and bigotry against any number of people who are different. That's, well, prejudice, think about the word prejudice. Think about the etymology of the word prejudice, prejudge. Don't confuse me with the facts. I've made up my mind. Now... I think racism and anti-Semitism present differently. They're yeah. both forms of prejudice. Racism, the racist punches down. The racist looks at a person of color, particularly but not only African-Americans or Latinos, and says, that person is going to destroy my white, precious gene pool. And again, I'm putting air quotes around that. Um, and therefore, we must protect ourselves against them. The anti-Semite looks at the Jew and says, that person is smarter in a conniving, evil, malicious way. That person uses power in a smarter, evil, malicious way. That person has money that they use in a malicious way. The anti-Semite is pushing up, but it's both a pushing from a place of prejudice. One of the things you do in the book is you take us through the degrees of and shadings of anti-Semitism from the most extreme to people whose anti-Semitism feels almost benign in mm. ways. The extreme example is someone like Alex Jones of InfoWars. Here's Alex Jones. He was on one of his shows. Um, and, and look, folks, this is hateful stuff. But I, I, I mentioned to Deborah and Jim before we started that we, we need to, we're not going to do a lot of this. But you need to hear what the haters are saying Absolutely. to understand it. And so I apologize in advance. So one day on a show, Alex Jones is talking about Rahm Emanuel, of course, an advisor, one of the, uh, President Obama's close advisors, and uh, his brother, who's a big Hollywood agent. They are, of course, Jewish. 
he tells this whole yarn about how Rahm Emanuel used to bully the president uh, and tell the president to shut up and do what I want you to do. And then he launches and then talks about his brother in Hollywood and the influence he wields. And then he launches into this. I've been called out hundreds of newspapers the last month as being anti-Semitic because I talk about a global corporate combine. Well, why are you labeling the TPP Jewish? I mean, it's it's got Jews involved in it, just like it's got everybody else. It's communist Chinese, global government, Japan. I mean, all these groups. But again, it's injected into it that you must be anti-Semitic. So I was just sitting back. I go, well, let me, let me then, I guess I better do some exposés on the Jewish mafia. And, and, you know, a guy foaming at the mouth with knives at cabinet meetings, basically threatening the president, who's got his fingers in everything, screwing us over. I mean, how do you come up with this stuff? How, where does this come from? Deborah, the global conspiracy. You don't even have to put the word Jewish in there. No. We know what's being said. Cosmopolitan, global. These are code words. Just like you have code words, we were talking about racism, punching up, punching down. Um, racism, it's shiftless, it's lazy. The code, stereotypical racist words. With Jews, it's cosmopolitan, global, financial interests, uh, powerful. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not denying, in fact, I'm quite proud that there, there are Jews, some of whom I know, who have become quite uh, prominent and do, do run companies, run businesses, are prominent in intellectual pursuits, etc. But the minute you put the, then you're dealing in prejudice. Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you what, uh, this, the 2018 campaign was just rife with, with I, I guess, the, the southernism for it would be, uh, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, f I mean, for instance, I mean, today, just very t today, uh, Jim Jordan, a uh, Republican mm -hmm. congressman out of, out of Ohio, uh, puts out a tweet criticizing Tom Steyer, uh, who is running an, an impeachment campaign against Trump, uh, except uh, uh, instead of the S, capital S in Steyer, he puts out the dollar sign. That's right. That's right. And of course, uh, Tom Steyer's uh, I, his dad's Jewish. I, I'm, I'm he, presuming he, right. I don't think he identifies as a Jew, but that doesn't matter to the anti-Semites. For the anti-Semites, right. he's a Jew. Look, no. If you're Jordan, you can say, "Oh, I, oh, he's a billionaire." That's all I was trying right. to say. Well, what do you do then with Kevin McDonald, a minority leader, who puts out a tweet before Kevin the mid McCarthy. McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, McCarthy? Excuse me, Kevin McCarthy, who puts out a tweet before the uh, uh, midterms saying we're not going to let Bloomberg, Steyer, and Soros, Soros yeah. steal mm -hmm. the election. Well, what do those three people have in common? They all happen to be Jews. And when you say, he says, oh, I didn't mean anything by that. Give me a break. <laughs> so um, let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way, speaking of breaks. <laughs> uh, and when we come back, let's explore these various shades of anti-Semitic behavior that you talk about. And then let's talk about some very specific examples of things that you have dealt with, that I uh, have dealt with uh, just living here in Atlanta, having been a director of the Anti-Defamation League at one point. We'll do all that with our guest, Deborah Lipstadt. She's here talking about her brand new book, Anti-Semitism Here and Now. You know, selling a car can be a hassle, but donating it is a whole different story. Let us take it off your hands or off your driveway and turn it into public radio and maybe even a tax deduction. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the host of Marketplace, and here is how to donate. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. A year after West Virginia teachers went on strike, educators there reflect on how they felt. It was surreal, but it was also empowering and scary. It was loaded with emotion, walking out of your classroom not knowing when you were going to return. I'm Audie Cornish. This afternoon on NPR's All Things Considered, the strike that led to teacher actions across the nation and why the struggle hasn't ended. Join us for All Things Considered this afternoon from 4 to 7 with Cindy Hill right here on GPB and gpbnews.org. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Our guest today, Professor Deborah Lipstadt. Her new book is Anti-Semitism Here and Now. Jim Galloway, of course, is uh, with me as well. Jim, I'm glad you pointed out the uh, tweet from uh, 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 Congressman um, Jim, Jordan. Jim Jordan. But you also sent over to me something that, Deborah, I'm not sure if you've had a chance to see this yet, Pope Francis 
this today opened the archives. Opened the archives to reveal whether Pope Pius the Twelfth, what his role was during the Nazis' mm-hmm. extermination of the Jews. Tell us a little bit about what that controversy has been the about. Controversy as long as you're here. is uh, Pope Pius the Twelfth, before he became Pope, was state was in was in uh, uh, Germany. He was a great fan of the Third Reich, very close with the leaders of the Third Reich, including Adolf Hitler. Um, And then he became Secretary of State, and then he became Pope. And uh, there was a feeling that the church, while it probably couldn't have stopped what the Nazis were doing, it could have certainly halted it somewhat. Um, and there, people say that Pope Pius did things privately. He told people quietly, told monasteries to hide Jews or things like that. Um, but others say here he was a voice of moral authority. And had he spoken out, had he said Catholics who take part in this are no longer eligible to receive the sacrament to whatever it might be, um, that it would have shaken some people up. Now, there are those who say, well, he couldn't say that. He was afraid what it might do to the church. But I'm paraphrasing here. Hannah Arendt said, Mm. if your only capital is your moral authority and you're afraid to use it, or you're reluctant to use it because of what might do to you, what are you left? Yeah. So, Jim, this is terribly important because typically the the Vatican keeps these kinds of archives closed, sealed for a much longer period right. of time. Right. And this will be the, so. So I, I'm not sure if they've been released yet. I know he's, uh, but uh, it would. You're still within the lifespan of some survivors of the Holocaust. That's right. Which I think makes that survivors important. and perpetrators. Because mm-hmm. if there's still survivors around, there's still perpetrators. It, the archive will be open on March 2nd, 2020, yes. according to the Associated bravo, Press Bravo, bravo to Pope Francis. So many popes have, oh, we can't do it. We're having a study commission. We're having this. We're having that. He said, look, the truth, what is it? The truth will set you free. Let's find out. Let's see what's in the archives, because the archives probably has the answer. Uh, can we jump around in your book a bit? Sure. Good. Uh, you know who's one of the people watching us on Facebook Live right now, who's and it that? leads to a conversation. Perry, good friend, uh-huh. uh, sent a note, and I'll talk about what Perry uh, sent us a note about in a minute. But Perry, good friend, was involved in one of the most notorious incidents. Perry of, Brickman. Perry Brickman. Oh my gosh, it was Perry Brickman. <laughs> I apologize. Well, Perry, good friend, is <laughs> watching on Facebook Live too. Mm. Perry Brickman was involved in one of the most notorious incidents of anti-Semitism on a university campus mm-hmm. in, in in Metro Atlanta. It happened to be at your university. Tell us about the Emory University Dental School well, incident. Emory had a dental school, went out of business in the 60s, but it had a dean. And the dean didn't control the admissions process. But once the, and there were a small number of Jews who would get in, four or five Jews a year maximum. Same thing with the um, medical school. It was highly restricted. Of course, no blacks got in, but that's, that's, that's for another, again, another conversation. Um, and once they, the guys got into the medical school, they were okay. They performed well, they succeeded. They didn't perform well, they were out. But the guys who got into the dental school were failing, were forced to repeat a year. They were told they were no good. And this Dean Bueller felt that he, what he would say is the Jews don't have it in their hands for dentistry. And they were being flunked out at an unbelievable rate. And no one would believe them. People would say, oh, you're not working hard enough. You're just carping because you, you, didn't, you didn't pass your courses. And this was in the 1960s, it's we should point out. in the 50s and the 60s. Yeah. That's and this, right. This, this makes me very, very sad because... I have em- emery fillings in my teeth from the 60s. <laughs> well, they, they aren't Jewish fillings, they were, they let me were. put it that way. So what happened? Uh, what happened? Well, one of the few people who believed them was Art Levin who, from the ADL, from the Anti-Defamation League. And he put together a chart showing the failure rate of the Jewish students as opposed to the non-Jewish student, and then the failure rate in the medical school. And he said something is completely out of whack here. Fast forward a number of years, and Emery has an exhibit celebrating 40 years of Jewish studies at Emory. And um, I just happened, I was at the exhi- visiting the exhibit. I had nothing to do with putting the exhibit together. I just happened to be visiting the exhibit, standing next to Perry and Shirley Brickman. And Perry looks at that and he knocks Shirley and says, I told you, I told you about this. 
And he was one of those who was flunked he out. He flunked out. He went to, um, I think, Tennessee from dental school and built a fabulous dental career after that very, very prominent and very much respected dental career. And Perry said he had no idea of the extent of it. So he took us a little video camera and his terrific wife, Shirley Brickman, and they began to drive around and fly around finding the guys to whom this had happened. And Perry told me the story of what happened when he came home and he told his mother that he had flunked out. And his mother said, couldn't you have worked a little harder? Couldn't you have studied a little harder? In so many of these families, this was the first child who not only had graduated from college but was going on to a professional degree to be a dentist. That was a great respect. And now they were a failure. If these, these, these drop, these flunk outs were heartbroken in men. I mean, this wasn't just a minor problem no. they experienced. This, this this was devastating. Devastating. And a major family investment. That's right. A um, major major family investment. So, so there were some went on to become one went on to become a major doctor, I think a thoracic surgeon. And when he was in fast forward, Perry puts together this information, brings it to a number of us at Emory. And we, for one, we all say to him, bring it to the administration. We'll, we'll get you an appointment with the president's office, et cetera. And he said, no, they won't want to hear. And we say, it's a different Emory. And he brings it and they look at it and they say, oh, we got to do something about this. So they invited all the guys, all, they invited all the guys who were uh, amongst those who had, been flunked, who had been flunked out to come back. And one evening in at Emory, I think it was 2014, 2015, uh, they all gathered there. Some of them who had gone on to be these prominent surgeons or uh, prominent other careers never told their partners that they had flunked out. Yeah. They were still so ashamed. Some hadn't told their families. And in front of all of them, the previous president of Emory University, Jim Wagner, stood up and he had a speech all set to go. But then he added an extemporaneous line. He looked at them and he said, I am sorry, we are sorry. You know, that's Jim. This is an example of the worst of anti-Semitism and then how people uh, atone. Well, Jim Wagner mm-hmm. was phenomenal with that. Yeah, this is, this is kind of truth and reconciliation. That's right. This is truth and reconciliation. And for some of those men, it was a moment of healing that those of us who were there... We'll never forget. So, Deborah, let me, if I can, do you have experiences? I want to share a story with you, but before I share my story, were there things in in your life uh, when you were younger, particularly and most vulnerable, that you were treated um, by people who were anti-Semitic? Hardly at all. I remember two incidences, one from when I was quite young and one when I was just beginning my career. One when I was quite young, I was with my father in some store. I don't remember what it was exactly. And my father said something either that he couldn't come and pick up the item on Saturday because we're Jewish and we'd be in synagogue or I don't know, whatever it was, it came out that he was Jewish. And the clerk said to him, oh, Mr. Lipstadt, some of my best friends are Jews. We walked out of the store. I said, hey, daddy, that's really nice. You know, some of his best friends are Jews. And my father said to me, do you ever hear anyone boast some of my best friends are white Anglo-Saxon Protestants? (laughs) The minute you're boasting, the minute we just saw that in a hearing in Congress last week, um, the minute you're boasting that some of my best friends are whatever, you're saying, well, I'm friendly with the good ones. And look at me. I'm so terrific. I'm friends with them. Yeah. So it's it's that philo-Semitism turned on the anti-Semitism. So that was one instance. And and the other instance was uh, shortly after I began my teaching career, I was teaching at the University of Washington in Seattle. I was the first, I was a professor of Jewish history, modern Jewish history, and the first professor in any place in the university on a Jewish topic, you know, Jewish literature, Jewish thought, whatever it might be, Jewish philosophy. And one day, a colleague, after I'd been there about eight months in the history department, a colleague took me out for coffee. And he said to me over coffee, Deborah, I have to tell you something. When I first heard that a Jewish woman from New York was getting this job, I was really nervous. I couldn't imagine what it was going to be like. But you are terrific. You're the best thing to ever happen to this department. And I... I was a young, I had just starting my career. I looked at him, I choked on my coffee, and I thought, that's the most anti-Semitic thing that I've ever heard. But what, sadly, <laughs> I kept quiet. I wouldn't keep quiet today. Um, 
So I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, in, a, in one of the neighborhoods I've lived in in my 35 years in Atlanta, I was out in front of the house one afternoon. And this goes to the notion that there's a, a spectrum of anti-Semitic behavior uh, from the from the, the worst, the Alex mm-hmm. Jones, to the more sort of casual country club mm-hmm. dinner table conversation as you talk about it. And uh, one of my neighbors was out there with us and I looked at She had a new roof put on her house. And I said to her, I said, that is, what a great, wow, that roof is great. That must cost you a fortune. She said, well, it should have. But it, I, I was able to Jew the guy down. And I got a great price for it. <laughs> now, I don't know whether my neighbor was anti-Semitic or not, but that was an anti-Semitic Absolutely. statement. And that's what mattered. That's... And, and here's the question. What do we do about that? I immediately said to her, this hurts. That expression is painful, Mm -hmm. and here's why. And confronting, even in the most polite, respectful way, strikes me as being essential to this process. It's what we call education. Yeah. You are educating her, and in a way, she may not have meant it. She may not even have thought about it. It's an expression she she grew up with. But it shows you the degree to which... That hatred is in the ethosphere or whatever you want to call it. It's out there in the environment. And she just thought she was saying something that was benign. I'm giving her the the benefit of the doubt that she was just saying something that was benign. But it clearly is based on Jews are cheap. Jews are conniving. Jews will get you to... To, to do things against your best interest. You know, the roof maker, the roof uh, repair person may have lost money, but she got a good price. Okay. Now, now l- let, me, let me get into more difficult territory here mm-hmm. then. then. Okay. When, when something, when language like that is overlaid with actual policy, mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, we're seeing that in Congress now. Uh, uh, we've, we've, we've seen that in, in your recent resignation from your from your local synagogue over over local Israeli politics, mm-hmm. and uh, we've certainly seen it in Great Britain uh, over over the extensively. Uh, so how do we? Okay, so how do you take the, the the policy and determine whether and 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 separate those two? Separate those the, okay, those I, two things. Okay, the it's like the nine hundred pound beast in the middle of the right, table. Yeah. Um, the issue of Israel. Criticism of Israeli policies is not anti-Semitism. You want to read criticism of Israeli policies, go to haaretz.com. Go to the floor of the Knesset, and when they're not screeching at each other and you can understand what they're saying, you'll hear serious (laughs) criticism of Israeli policies. It's when you take a myopic view that the criticism of Israel, as there was a study done uh, last a couple of years ago uh, in which in the EU, and people said, what is the greatest threat? People were asked, what is the greatest threat to world peace? Not North Korea and not the Sudan and not what Myanmar is doing to the Rohingya and not China and how it's treating Muslims in its country, but Israel is the biggest threat. There's, there's a myopic... Uh, trans, uh, almost being transfixed by what Israel is doing, what Israel is capable of, etc., that you have to ask what's going on here. Or in the same sense, a, a again, my, using myopia, the blindness or tunnel vision of this problem is all Israel's fault. They're Wrongs on both sides. No country, no body of people is without its wrongs. You can have more wrongs. You can feel the balance of power. But when you only focus on one or only focus on this problem to the exclusion of all others, you got to ask what's going on. So the American Jewish community, and certainly you know it as well as anybody, is divided right now on the politics of Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, your resignation from your synagogue was based on the fact that in an effort to hold on to his governing coalition, he brought in to uh, work with him uh, a party that is perceived by many to be uh, uh, racist, anti-Muslim to the extreme, correct? In the extreme, absolutely. Um, He brought in um, a party that's direct links to Meyer Kahana, um, with whom... People like Prime Minister Menachem Begin, the first non-labor prime minister of Israel, or even his his successor, Yitzhak Shamir, who was even to the right of Menachem Begin, would have nothing to do with. 
Now, I'm not saying that as a party they should exist, they shouldn't exist, but to bring them into the government I thought was all wrong. Now, I didn't resign over that. I resigned because the only national Jewish organization to support the move and defend the move happens to be the national Jewish organization of which the synagogue I belong to is part of. And my rabbi, local rabbi, Rabbi Adam Starr, spoke out very strongly against this. In fact, he right away put up on social media, not in my synagogue or not in my name. But in the book, I talk about how important it is to speak out, to speak out when you hear prejudice, to speak out when you hear anti-Semitism, like you did with your neighbor and who's getting the roof and saying, I Jewed him down, to educate, to become the unwelcome guest at the dinner mm-hmm. party, to say, this is prejudice, this is hate. If I'm going to say, do that, and this is done in my name, I'm going to say, well, it was a national organization and I didn't have anything to do with it, my rabbi. I couldn't keep quiet. And many people compliment. I was amazed at how how much press the decision got. I really was. Um, and many people complimented me on it. And I said it was a no-brainer. I had. I, it was so obvious to me that I had to do that. Uh, let's get another break out of the way. And when we come back, I, I, a lot of threads I'd love to pick up on um, uh, Jim and Deborah. Among them, uh, we now have a couple of members of Congress, Democrats, progressive Democrats, Who's, um, who have been accused of anti-Semitic uh, comments, and we should explore how we absorb that, what we make of it, and that's just one of the many things I'd still love to talk uh, with Deborah Lipstadt about. We'll be right back. On the next Fresh Air, why some children struggle with adversity more than others. Pediatrician and child development researcher Thomas Boyce says studies suggest while most kids are pretty resilient and ready to cope with stress, a minority are more sensitive, both to stressful situations and to a nurturing environment. He'll talk about how to help them and his new book, The Orchid and the Dandelion. Join us. Fresh Air this afternoon at 3 here on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. Touchdown, John Nelson here from GPB Sports, reminding you that in Georgia, the four seasons are not winter, spring, summer, and fall. It is football, spring football, Cruton, and National Signing Day. On the Football Fridays in Georgia podcast, we'll tell you the stories on and off the field. Subscribe at gpb.org forward slash sports and wherever your favorite podcasts are found. My partner Jim Galloway and I are talking to uh, Professor Deborah Lipstadt, author of Anti-Semitism Here and Now. You've, this is your sixth book? Right. Wow. Very. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. All right. So here's this bizarre situation which occurred in the last week, just as a starting point, Deborah. Um, in the Mark Cohen hearings, at a certain point, uh, um Mark Meadows, uh, the conservative defender, Republican defender of President Trump, got into it with uh, freshman representative uh, Ilan Omar, who is a Muslim. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tabib, didn't he get into it? Oh, no, it was, you're right. It was, you're exactly right. This is the second time you've corrected me. You I'm are now the new host the of the air. show. No, <laughs> Thank that's you good. very much. No, no, that's <laughs> good. Our, our listeners know that I need you all to correct <laughs> me every now and then. So you're right. Rashida Tlaib got into it with Mark Meadow mm-hmm. uh, uh, because he'd brought an African-American woman to stand behind him. As to, a prop. Yes, as a prop. Mm-hmm. All right. She accused him, although she denied it, of being a racist. And he was offended and they clashed with each other and it became a big drama. What, of course, is fascinating about this is while all that's going on, um, uh, Talib, like uh, uh, Ilan Omar, are both Muslims who've had very critical comments to make about Israel and the way in which Israel treats the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. This all becomes to me so convoluted and complex. How do what do you what how do you unravel this? Well, first of all, in terms of what happened in the hearings, I I, I didn't see it because I was listening on the radio. I was happened to be in transit to New York, but when I saw a rerun of it, I was appalled. Yeah. This woman stood there like or was was made to stand there. She looked uncomfortable like she was you know, she was a prop. Um, and I think Talib in her criticism was careful. I mean, maybe she wasn't careful enough because in, there's this strange code of conduct. Yeah, on there the was house. a little revisionism yeah, on right, her part. Right. But uh, she was right to criticize him. Um, but what we've seen, you see, 
let's step back from from some of these members of Congress and look at the issue in bigger terms, maybe even including the United Kingdom, the Labor Party, which, you know, as I was looking at during the break, this this news feed comes all, yeah. all the time, all the time. Many progressives, uh, when they're accused of anti-Semitism, will say, wait a minute. They, the, the way they look at prejudice, the way progressives generally look at prejudice, the way their view of, the, the, of prejudice is refracted is through a prism. If you remember from your high school physics, prisms bend light, and it has facets on it. Uh, so it had, it, this prism would have two facets, a facet of class and a facet of ethnicity. And they would look at a Jew and see oh, someone of privilege, and they would look at a Jew as a white person, how can you possibly be a victim of prejudice? Now, I just bracket that by saying to the people on the far right, the white supremacists, the white extremist nationalists, like the guy in, in Pittsburgh, he didn't see Jews as white. He went in and he accused Jews of, of, you know, you're bringing down the white race or the people in Charlottesville who were marching didn't see Jews as white. But that's beside the point. And so if you say to them, this is anti-Semitism, they say, oh, you, you you're bringing up something that can't be true. Second of all, I'm a progressive. How could I possibly be an anti-Semite? It's impossible. That's what Jeremy Corbyn does. He says, my mother marched at one of the famous uh, marches uh, or one of the attended one of the famous rallies against uh, uh, British fascists in the 30s. I got, I got progressivism with my mother's milk. So the minute you criticize them, they're going to say, well, it's, I couldn't be anti-Semitic. I'm just engaging in criticism of Israeli policies. But when Representative Omar, and she has since apologized for this and withdrawn the tweet, but she says, oh, it's all about the Benjamins baby when they're talking about a support of Israel. What she's suggesting is the only reason Americans support Israel, American representatives support Israel, is because they're being paid off. Or re more recently, she talked about allegiance to another country. Well, you know... We don't say that about Irish who support Ireland. We don't say that about Indians who have great support for India. But when it's when it when it comes to Jews, it becomes that cosmopolitan that's tied yeah. up in that template of anti-Semitism. That is, Jim, one of the great tropes about uh, the Jews in Israel, that uh, our first allegiance is to the country of Israel, not to the United States. And we've heard that used in by politicians in the United uh, States. And, 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 and to be fair, it's been applied to Catholics as well. I mean, J JFK had to deal with that. That's right. Very, very famously. Uh, and, and, and yet, yet, one of the reasons that that you know if if you're if you're uh, if you're from Michigan or if, uh, I think uh, which who is from which one is yeah, Talib Talib okay all right uh, a very very heavy uh, Arab American population That's okay right. yeah so you're going you're going you're going to be representing uh, uh, people with with roots um, in in the Middle East here and yeah you know, one of the realities of Washington D.C is that Israel has a very good lobby mm -hmm. in, in, in D.C. I mean, it is a strong lobby. And, and it has, but, but it, it has developed into something that's not, it, it's not financially based. It's based with, on, upon an alliance with Christian evangelicals. And, and non-evangelicals. Yes, the evangelical yeah. support has become very strong, but it's not, I don't think it's just evangelicals. But it's not financially based. And to say it's all about the Benjamins baby... Um, is really, I think, uh, a falling back on a anti-Semitic trope. It's, it's more like there, there, there's a comparison to be made in, in, without without regard to its its, its content to the NRA, mm -hmm. in which in which you know the, the NRA has tapped has a fervent following in the United States. It's not, and their power, their their lobby power, is not financially based. Mm -hmm. It's fervency based. So how do we deal? But, yeah, go but, ahead. Go well, ahead. Well, I just think it's it, there's also a greater affiliation, a greater um, uh, recognition, uh, alliance with uh, what the Jewish state represents. Its its relationship mm -hmm. to Christianity. It's and and the fact that it is and certainly there are problems right now regarding this. But the only vibrant democracy in in the Middle East. You know, I heard a story recently of a a student at a selective New York. City Public School, who went to her teacher and said, will you sign a letter of recommendation for me for a summer program? And the teacher said, sure. And when she brought in the form, the teacher looked at it, the teacher happened to be Jewish, and said, oh, it's for Israel, I won't sign the form. And this student has moxie. She pushed back and she said, 
was there any other country you wouldn't sign a form for? If mm. I could go to North Korea, would you? If I could go to Saudi Arabia, where as a woman I couldn't go out of the compound unless I was dressed in a certain way and accompanied by a male, uh, would you sign a letter for me for there? Would you sign for Myanmar? Would you sign for China? And he said, yeah, sure, why not? There's something wrong with that, yeah. in my opinion. We're really running out of time, but I want to point something out to you and ask you with the very, you know, maybe minute we have left. Uh, it's interesting that we've talked uh, for an hour almost, and uh, Donald Trump's name hasn't come up once. It, it should come up because I, I went after Jeremy Corbyn and the Labor Party and the progressives. I don't know if Donald Trump is an anti-Semite or not. I tend to doubt it. He's very proud, I'm sure, of his Jewish son-in-law, of his Jewish daughter, his Jewish grandchildren. But he has enabled anti-Semitism on the right. And so it's wrong to just focus on the left. You've got to look at the right. He, whether he is or he isn't, he is enabled. Let me put it this way. Um, all white nationalists, and when we talk about white nationalists, they're not just racists. They're anti-Semites at the core and racists. Um, believe he's on their side, believe he supports them. If I did something that people people I abhor thought I was sending them a dog whistle, I'd say, hey, wait a minute, you got me wrong. He hasn't said that. He said, nice people march in Charlottesville. I'm sorry, nice people do not march with arms outstretched in a Hitler salute saying Jews will not replace us. Nice people don't drive cars into protesters. Nice people don't march with swastika-like symbols. He's an enabler. He's not may not be an anti-Semite, but he's certainly an enabler. Uh, Jim, uh, early in the conversation, uh, pointed out to us in these fractured times, people form into their tribes, and uh, some of those tribes go to war with one another. And certainly you have to say the president Trump has had a lot to do with the fracturing that has led to our tribal identification and attacks on people who are not in our tribe. That's right. I think that there's been those kind of dog whistles. And the sad thing is that doesn't get put back in the box easily. It's out of the box and it's going to stay out of the box for a long time. It's going to lead to more hatred, more contempt of which anti-Semitism is a part. We are out of time. Could we take another hour? I mean, if Terry does Terry Gross need the next hour? Because I'd love to keep talking <laughs> with Deborah and Jim Galloway. Uh, our guest has been Deborah Lipstadt. Her book, uh, Anti-Semitism, Here and Now. And hear that very important second line. It is here, it is now, and your book helps us understand uh, better what that means. And, and for me, it helps me understand better what I might need to do to be a activist against uh, that kind of uh, horrendous bigotry. Jim Galloway, thank you for being here for uh, oh, today's just, show I as well. I just enjoyed listening. Deborah, thank you very thanks much. Thanks so much for My coming pleasure. in. My pleasure. Thank you. We're back again uh, tomorrow afternoon at 2 with a brand new Political Rewind, and we will be covering uh, the major uh, issues going on down at the Capitol. There are a lot of them. The hot-button issues, the social issues, are back in full force. We'll talk about them tomorrow at 2. I'm Bill Nygut. See you then.